Welcome to Unlocking Leadership. I'm Claire Carpenter and I'm your host. I'm joined today by Steve Chaluma. Steve is the general manager at Birdseye, which, as you'll know, is the leading branded business in frozen foods. Steve, you've been with the organisation for more than 25 years now in various different guises. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Claire. I can't wait to talk to you. There's so many things I want to ask you about. Before I do all of that, though, help us land today. Tell us a bit about who you are. What's your story with Birdseye that's kept you there for more than 25 years? Yeah, I joined the business in in 1996. And and back then it was owned by Unilever. Hmm. Actually, Birdseye was twinned with Walls, the ice cream brand that you all know, Magnum, Solero. So we're one business. Got a really good grounding in management, actually, and I started my career in sales. Then after a few years, made a move into some other related sales functions, category management, trade marketing, and eventually found what I was really passionate about, which was marketing and brand management. And mm-hmm. uh, the business supported me with that move. However, the business, whilst I was uh, on my kind of learning path, whilst the uh, the brands were very, very solid, the business wasn't doing very well. Mm-hmm. So the frozen food category in the 90s was languishing, I would say. If you'll remember back then, there was a big focus from supermarkets on the chilled part of the store. You had retailers like M&S leading the charge. Frozen food was seen as a bit of a poor relation. It was hard to grow the business, actually. And whilst it was very profitable and we had strong brand, we couldn't pull it out of that sort of static phase, if you like. Mm. So Unilever made the decision to sell the business, which was quite dramatic because it kept the walls part, the ice cream part, and uh, disposed of the bird side. And that was very dramatic because one day there was literally the ice cream team on one side of the office and the bird's eye team on the other and they kind of locked the doors and said right wow. you're so it was a real kind of feeling of rejection in a way yeah. at that moment and failure that we weren't able to crack it and succeed in this great big global business yeah essentially Unilever sold the business into private equity ownership and you know a lot of people in the business were concerned about that about what that would mean because it wasn't it wasn't a well understood concept back then but actually that gave the business a huge opportunity because rather than being a a very small part of a global business, all of a sudden we became a very small business. Mm -hmm. Unilever was, say, a $50 billion business, and all of a sudden we're a a $1 billion business, for example. So the business culturally adapted the feeling of of a pretty small enterprise. We became far more intentional about our own destiny. You know, while there might be this kind of perception of private equity as as a slash and burn and cost cutting, they actually brought in great leaders. And I was just really open minded just to see how that would that would turn out. And it was a great learning experience, completely different culture. Lots of talented people came in from companies like PepsiCo and Procter and & Gamble and Heinz. And it became this melting pot and it felt like we were creating something new. The business became more profitable through some of the decisions it made. And I continued to progress within marketing. But with private equity ownership, there's always an exit in mind as well. So after seven or eight years, I tried to sell the business, didn't because of some external factors. And then then a new strategy was put in place. And it was a strategy to essentially make the business as attractive as possible as as an entity to buy. Eventually, a a buyer was bought. And now we're in in the third phase, which is under Nomad Foods for the last six, seven years. It was in 2014. 
And it's been a really great journey. It's been the best part of the journey. We're, we're, on, we're listed on the American Stock Exchange. And then I've continued to learn and progress through roles last few years as marketing director of, of Birdseye. Then in, in 2018, we made a couple of acquisitions. We also we bought the Aunt Bessie's brand, which is famous for roast dinners and the Goodfellas brand. And we've had a real transformational journey in the last five or six years of going from around, I think our scale was about 450 million and now we're around 800 million in sales wow. in the last sort of five years alone. And then at, at the beginning of last year, just before the pandemic, I moved into a role as, as general manager. It's been, it's been a real journey and it is, it is a real privilege to be part of a business like Birdseye because we have such a big scale and impact and reach on, on British food and the population. So if you look at the number of meals that feature one of our products a year, it's 1.5 billion meals. Wow. So every day there's 4 million meals that feature one of our products. And I just find that very humbling. And it's also a brand I've grown up with. Yeah. Uh, I remember being a child, and I don't know if you used to uh, eat any of our products as a child, fish fingers or, or peas or potato waffles. So I've kind of gone full circle. I've grown up with it as a, as a child into being a student and having waffles with baked beans or fried egg on top. Then, uh, you know, I met my, met my wife at, at, in the business, and now I have three children. Yeah. And, and they are products, and so do their friends. And I just love what we do, and I love our food. That sense of, of purpose and waking up in the morning, tackling thing, questions like how do we encourage children to eat more vegetables? Yeah. You can only feel good about that, that, you know, that kind of purpose and mission. We've got that kind of mission all over the business, that kind of idea, our purpose of serving the world with better food. I can go on for years around <laughs> the products and the food, but I'm as energized now about the opportunity, which I think now is starting to be realized more than ever about our category than, than I ever have. I can really hear that. I can really hear that passion coming through as you're, as you're describing your experience of being there for that length of time. And I'm fascinated by this sense of almost ownership of the British public in the brand that you're sort of the custodian of to a certain extent. It is, as you say, it's part of our history and our legacy, isn't it? As you know, we've grown up with it. It really is. And I think it's something that I have a deep respect for. When you work on a brand like Birdseye, you have to recognize that you're only a temporary guardian of that brand. The Birdseye brand was born in the 1930s, right? So it existed way before you did. It has its own history, value and trust that's been built up for decades. So you've got a real mm. responsibility to nurture that. You know, you're at the table with the consumer at some of their most special kind of bonding moments. Yeah. And that, that that's a real privilege to work on a collection of brands where your brands are playing that role. Do you know, um, as you're talking, I'm really reminded of that brilliant book by Simon Sinek, the start with why thing, having the yes. why at the heart of your purpose and what you're doing, really driving the way that you show up in your role. It feels like you've got a really clear purpose in that. I'm wondering how as a leader then, how do you cascade that sense of passion and commitment to the brand and the responsibility of the organisation that you're working for as you go through the organisation? I think you have to reinforce and you have to physically demonstrate it. Mm. You kind of treat it as a cause the fact that I've been there that long gives a bit of credibility in that, you know, so mm. it's almost the brand is it's personal and it's emotional. There's a personal relationship that you develop with the brand and people see that. And there isn't that distance of this is just a functional kind of business. It really matters. 
I focus a lot on that that sense of visualizing and dramatizing the role that our products play mm. and the good that our products do in, in, in people's lives. And then the other aspect is the quality and the, of food that we produce. Again, you know, when people join the business, you know, we encourage them to really get to know the products deeply and how we make them and how we source. We have uh, initiatives like the Fish University, for example, where people will go to our fish a manufacturing site and 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 you know they'll follow the whole, the whole story about how we sustainably fish how we process to take the best bit of a fish and then how we freeze that you know what the benefits of freezing and then how that ends up eventually into a fish finger and then all the nutritional benefits that come with that you know one of the highlights of the year and it's a bit like the old days when the Beaujolais used to come from uh, over from France it's only people of, that's me showing my age because that's not no, really no. a thing I think that was last week I think that's oh. okay <laughs> oh, is that <laughs> is the pea harvest? You know, when those pea viners get going, that's a massive emotional moment that we celebrate in the business. Wow. Yeah, we haven't been able to in the last couple of years because of COVID, but mm. we organise trips to people go to the pea harvest and see that process in two and a half. I mean, it's like a military operation. You know, picking the right moment to pick them, and then within two and a half hours, they're frozen. I mean, it's mm-hmm. incredible. You start to meet the farmers and our agricultural team. I mean, they, these are incredible people and they work during that pea season. They work 24 hours. It's creating that connection to the benefits of our product, why we do things better, because people do pay more for our brands and there's a reason for it. We go the extra mile. It's our business. It's our passion. What I found consistently is people absorb that sense of connection themselves and they're really mm. proud to work for the business. And if you can engender that in a team, it's um, it's gold dust because people go the extra mile. You'll get that what those one percent shifts in the business that can you know, have an amplified effect in terms of performance and effectiveness and culture. Well, I'm thinking about the changes you've experienced, the different ownerships that have sat across your employment time with the organization and the experience of working first for Unilever, this, you know, enormous international giant, then under your private equity owner, and now under Nomad, US owned. I'm thinking about navigating the different ways that you, as a British brand and business, have been able to work with those different owners to try and communicate some of what you're talking about. Throughout that time, at its essence, what we've always tried to strike is the balance between respecting local and leveraging the benefits of being part of a local, a larger organisation. You know, to be honest, one of the reasons why a Unilever might have considered selling Birdseye is it was it was very hard to globalise it. Mm. So, if you consider our colleagues in ice cream, if you buy a Magnum, a Magnum's a Magnum. With, and it's got eight different languages on and it's it's the same. You get massive scale from that, right? It's a global brand. Mm. But when you look at main meal food, it's a very different proposition. You know, what we eat in, in UK, in vegetables, for example, we're a peas country. That's the big frozen veg. It's not the big frozen veg in Germany. In Germany, it's spinach, cream spinach for, for that matter. And even even the fish fingers, the fish, you know, we're a cod country in the UK and, 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 and Italy's hake, mm. for example, and Germany's Alaskan pollock. So I think... I think that local aspect has always been respected. And when we haven't respected it, we've suffered for it. And in some some elements of that ownership, we've swung one way or the other. The key difference across those phases, though, is two things. One is the kind of expectation that the business has 
within its portfolio. And the second aspect has been accountability. So within within Unilever times, it was a well-respected brand and it was a very profitable brand, but it wasn't a fast drive brand like some of the other brands. It was a, it was a bit of a cash cow, as you might say, right? So the level of expectation was that bit lower and therefore the accountability for success or, or failure wasn't as strong. When all of a sudden you're a small business, either within private equity or recently we're on the New York Stock Exchange, there's a massive accountability. So, you know, in my role in, as, as, as general manager of the UK, we're responsible for about 30% of the whole company revenue is the UK. So if you, you know, you need to perform and you need to deliver. So that level of accountability is huge compared to being part of a, a tiny part of a big global business. And you learn a lot, a lot from that. The way I always look at strategy and how that's evolved over that time is, is, is around balance, I would say. The way I would articulate it is a bit like a graphic equalizer. You know, when you listen to music, right? And how much bass do you want and how much treble or whatever? You always have choices in strategy about, you know, where you're going to play and how you're going to win. And you dial up or dial down different aspects. You know, how much you're going to focus on your core versus kind of new innovation and new segments. Big decision. How local are you going to be versus how central you're going to be? Your media, how much are you going to spend on traditional media like television versus more modern media, digital and such the like. So it's always a process of what is the optimal mix amongst those different factors from a strategic point of view that will lead to the best outcomes for the business in terms of organizationally and, and results. So I'm thinking about, as you've said, the, the sort of changes that you've experienced over the time in which you've been working with, with the business and your background as you came through the sort of category management, marketing roles, etc. It feels like yeah. that's been an important direction for you to go through based on where you find yourself now. I mean, the business has sort of reinvented itself, hasn't it? It feels like that to me, even as a consumer, as a customer. There's marketing and branding in place now that I hadn't seen for a long time. <laughs> Captain Birdseye's back, for goodness sake, isn't he? Um, <laughs> yeah. Where's he been hiding? How important has that background been for you as you now come into your role as general manager to have had that background? I think it's been very important, actually, in two main aspects. Number one is in terms of the confidence and the relevance of the category. Frozen food has got so many benefits that it's always functionally had, but the, the extent to which the business, has, as a leader in the category, has positioned them as relevant has really changed, you know, the confidence in that. So it's a far more relevant category now than it ever, ever has been. You look at themes uh, like sustainability, food waste, for example. I mean, frozen is the frozen food is the perfect vehicle to avoid food waste because it doesn't go off. It's got long shelf life. But, you know, that's always been there. But the, it, in some ways, the stars align as well for you externally, and it's how you adapt to that. Mm-hmm. The second thing that my experience, and I've seen this go full circle really is how you manage a brand and the constituent parts of the brand okay and when I started and you know I don't know if you'll recall this Birdseye and I'll focus on Birdseye was was kind of split into sub brands right so you had Captain Birdseye on uh, that was called the Captain's Table that sub brand so everything fish was under the Captain's Table we had a a sub brand called the Country Club Birdseye Country Club that was for everything veg vegetables and peas and you know are you good enough to join the country club it was about quality and then we had uh, menu master you know which was a ready meals platform you know made for the way we work today so we had all these sub platforms and then they had their own kind of character and advertising campaigns and identity 
Then, you know, it started in the Unilever days. We tried to sort of consolidate that. So instead of having sub-brands, you'd be a master brand. You know, let's leverage the power of bird's eye and have one campaign that is the same and one look and feel that is the same, whether you encounter us in fish or vegetables or whatever. In that exercise, you get rid of specific category brand equities like Captain Birdseye. So we didn't use Captain Birdseye for over 10 years. You know, there was a view that, well, he's a bit of a frivolous old fogey on a ship, you know, with a bunch of children, and that's not relevant. And it's a bit old hat. Yet, if you looked at the recognition of brand icons, mm-hmm. even 10 years after him walking off the plank, or I don't know how to use an analogy, he had 82% recognition. Yeah. Many brands would just kill for a equity like that and we weren't using him so you know that master brand model before we were nomad foods in the last years of the private equity we were oper- it was operating like a, a master brand we had one campaign across categories across europe and it was very very efficient i mean really efficient way of managing a brand mm. but it was very ineffective because if you look at the benefits that our different products bring they're, they're distinctive and consumers buy them for different reasons. Peas are very much around freshness and goodness and nutrition. Fish fingers, they're often the first way of giving kids fish, right? So there's a nurturing aspect there. Something like a chicken dipper is, is about fun and dipping and getting your hands dirty. And when you're trying to ladder that up into one brand idea, you lose all of that. You get to something quite bland. So actually, the, the real shift that we made in the last six years is to go back to break the brand up again into what we what we call now strategically must win battles fish fingers and I always come back to that because it's it's the biggest bit of the business what does it take to win in fish fingers if you were a fish finger business and put all your resources to succeed what would you do well you'd use the fish finger equity icon right captain bird's eye now of course to my point earlier you respect the past but you also have to respect that times change so you know, we didn't go back to more of a, you know, swashbuckling kind <laughs> of singing kind of times of change. So we went for someone who was a bit more authentic, a bit more real and, you know, focus on that sort of quality message rather than this kind of fantasy land of, of children on a boat and all this kind of thing. And we had the same approach in peas. We couldn't do it on everything. So we've made choices of, of segments that we focus on and ones we don't or that are lower priority. That approach has been really, really successful for us and has enabled us to turn around the business and given us confidence to invest in innovation, but in the right way. And then ultimately to extend the business by buying some new brands as well. Goodfellas and Aunt Bessie's. So I'm thinking about what you might say to somebody who says, yeah, Steve, you know, 25 years, same company, you know, you've moved around a lot. You've done lots of different work within it. But isn't it better to look outside of your immediate environment when you want to progress? Why are you still there? What would you say to them? Being in the same business hasn't held me back from a development point of view and learning Mm. point of view. So I've never been at the point where I don't see the potential for learning and I don't see the potential for progress, whether that's kind of lateral learning and progress. And that's been a big focus of mine. It's been deliberate choice to invest you know, horizontally, as well as, you know, progress vertically. And, you know, I've always had the view that why be in a rush for anything? We work from the age of early 20s until your mid 60s. That's over 40 years. So I think there is a there is a challenge that you see people 
impatient to want to progress and not necessarily embrace. My view has always been to embrace change and learning experiences as one important factor. But importantly, and you know, this has been the underpinning, be motivated and work on something you truly believe in and that you think you can make an impact on. And if you have that, if you have those two aspects and also that the the business fits in with your own personal, you know, work life and you can make it succeed without being overburned or, or stressing and the culture works for you, then why this pressure to to change and to move in order to progress? Clearly, if you get to the situation, and I I won't say it will never come for me, because you just don't know, right, where you don't see those uh, opportunities for learning and progress, or you don't quite believe, or you believe in something even more, then fine, then then that's a valid reason. But I think, you know, often people jump ship too quickly. And, you know, there's been some occasions where actually people have, have left, and then they've They've sort of come back into the business after a few years, for example, which is which they're always welcome if they have the right attitude and, and appetite for learning. Yeah, I've been fortunate as well in this process of those different ownership phases have give, given an accelerated different aspect of it's almost felt like working in different businesses. Anyhow, mm-hmm. it feels like I've moved anyhow because it's you're kind of moving from Unilever to a private equity business, which is different into this kind of new business. That has given an, a, another dimension that has made it more interesting journey and made me more open to change and, and new experiences. On the subject of learning, and you've, you've referenced that several times as you've talked about your own experience. What do you think about people who are at the beginning of their career in management? What would you say to them in terms of how they invest in themselves from the point of view of learning that skill in that privileged place of having you know people in your care, really, when you're at work? What would you say to them about investing in themselves around learning? I would point to two things. Number one, and in particular earlier on in your career, because I think it's easier early on, is actively seek out different roles. You know, your first five to 10 years, try some different functions out because what drove you to to, to think you wanted to be a, a salesperson or a marketing person or a finance person, right? You don't know that that's the kind of hypothesis you have going in or based on what you studied. And naturally, there'll be some where people have got professional qualifications, but even that doesn't have to hem you into a particular segment. But, you know, you've got you've got that opportunity. And it's something having been through it myself, I always encourage younger members to try different roles out, even if that feels lateral and that you, you're not going to progress and get that big salary rise. Mm-hmm. Just invest in that in your early years, because. A, you might find a passion that you otherwise wouldn't have otherwise found by trying that function. And B, it has the potential to pay dividends later on because it opens up more options to you. So that's the first thing. The second thing I always urge is make sure you connect externally. If you're in a function like marketing, my goodness, there are so many associations and um, organizations that help connect you with peers in the industry that's useful not only in terms of learning from other businesses and approaches and building your network but it's actually puts you in quite uncomfortable situation as well you know going into a room and you 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 say you're the only person from bird's eye and then there's lots of other people really takes you out your comfort zone Mm. to kind of put yourself out there but again that's something I learned quite late late in my career to do that and it's really I wish I'd done that a lot earlier actually so take advantage of all the external 
learning opportunities as well, not only to connect, but also to stay, you know, one of the risks with, with someone like me staying in this category is that that's all you know, and you just, you don't bring any external perspective. So that makes it even more important to make sure you kind of build that, that network externally as well. So those would be two important things, I would say. Yeah. Um, where do you stand in terms of the sort of academic learning from management point of view as well? Have you invested in that for yourself, for example, or what do you do for your business? I think that can play a really important role, actually. I did an MBA and that was probably six or seven years in from starting my career, which was a good time to do it because you understand a business then and it can be more applied learning, right? And and that gave two big benefits. Number one, clearly it helped develop that breadth because you you learn finance, you learn supply chain, other functions, and then you have more confident conversations. But you know that the thing that happens if, for example, you do go to college or university and then you go to employment, when you're at university, you write a lot of dissertations and essays and communication is, is analytical and you have to use words. And then when you start in a business, it becomes very superficial, mm-hmm. right? It's short emails and you kind of lose that method of telling a story and that capability and that and the ability in terms of analysis as well. When I did my MBA, I kind of rediscovered that and it was a really big learning for me. So it's almost like it also helps you relearn a kind of communication and how to tell a strategic argument and a story. I mean, mm. you know, I always like to see kind of one page exec summaries, right? And that, it's an art. It's an art to do that because it's so tempting to do 40 slides on a PowerPoint. But you can have a real impact and influence by being able to craft a business story or a business case in an articulate way. And so, you know, clearly external learning, formal learning, you can build your functional skills and, and areas to supplement your own on-the-job learning, and that plays a role. But I think, you know, there are these other aspects in terms of communication mm. that are undervalued, actually, in terms of what it can also help bring. I love that you mentioned there that there's something about expanding your levels of confidence as well in areas outside of, of your immediate sphere yes. of expertise. Yes. I wonder if you've noticed, in particular, since perhaps we've been working more remotely, I'm appreciative that in, within your production sites that's not been the case but I guess for your back office staff I imagine many of them working remotely yes what have you noticed the last couple of years have done in terms of the general feel of the organization the culture how have you managed that clearly it was a very big shock initially you know focusing on office-based staff right so Mm. I, I only started my role as general manager in the January and then in March I'm having to send an email everyone go home it was so strange <laughs> and it was a bit like well we'll see you after Easter because we yeah. just didn't know right <laughs> back then uh, me and my board team we had to put in some steps and the leadership teams across the business as well to kind of over communicate and over connect with people initially you know we've got a weekly town hall that is still there and we get all kind of 160 kind of management and, and off, head office people and it's a real moment of connection because it's we're sort of more connected in that hour than we were in physically in the office mm. uh, because it, you know in the office it's who was there and we've got a northern office and and that's a forum for us as a leadership team we rotate the leadership of that to the different board leaders but people are welcome to bring their own problems successes share news there's been a few kind of routines that we've put in place mm. but then we've really amped up on health and well-being 
Um, so there's a number of sub teams that we've put to kind of work on that. And it's kind of developed a life of its own. So it's, it's kind of organically developed a whole load of initiatives to encourage a, a greater focus on people taking care of themselves, you know, mentally and physically. And, and you know, we've supported that as a business. So, for example, last year, we've got a kind of we've got a meat free brand called Green Cuisine, Bird's Eye Green Cuisine. And we sponsored Team GB on the Olympics. Right. Which was which was really good element to be involved with in terms of health and well-being anyway. And one of the team members came up with idea of the team doing a walk from London to Tokyo. Now, obviously not a physical walk, but you know everyone would set up an app and everyone logged their steps. And every week at our town hall, we'd log you know, how far we got. And that was a real collective. A, it was a good thing to do in terms of health and well-being, but it was a really good thing to connect us together. But the, the other thing that, that I've put a lot of importance on is how is connecting with people as well, personally. So whenever I have a web call or whatever, I, you know, I'll always spend the first... 10 minutes just kind of seeing how people are and what's going on in their lives mm. and similarly any new starter any new manager in our business I'll spend an hour with them just kind of introducing and creating that sense of accessibility and getting to know them personally so in general to summarize over indexing on that kind of building that personal connection you sort of have to over over invest in that mm-hmm. in this period of going kind of virtual Whereas in an office environment, that will happen more naturally in a human way. So as we draw towards the close of our conversation today, I mean, we've touched on lots of different areas, haven't we? I wonder from the meander that our conversation has taken us in. I mean, oh, there's another watery thing there. I wonder where you might put, I don't know, two or three pieces of key advice for somebody emerging as a manager or a leader in their own organization that would be really key things for them to take from your experience of doing that? Yes, I think the first would be if you can work on something you really believe in, you will get up in the morning and feel good about what you're doing and the the role your business is playing. And you can look in the mirror and feel good about that. Then that has an inordinate difference on your own personal level of motivation and on the way you motivate others as a leader it almost becomes embryonic and by osmosis that will happen and not to underestimate the power of that and then the second is would be from my journey be open to change ownership changes strategy can change strategy is always about choice you might agree with it you might not if you don't you always have a choice right to try something else out or if it challenges your especially if it challenges your values but if you're open to that change, then it can be a, a massive source of development and learning. And then the third thing would be the one that the point that we discussed, you know, reasonably recently around seek breadth in your development. Take a kind of 40 year view and not a two year view yeah. of your career development. And sometimes making those short term moves to go broad can pay back massively. You might not see it at the time but can pay back massively in the long term, not just because it might make you a more effective manager or leader, because Mm -hmm. actually you might find something that you're even more passionate about that you wouldn't have known if you hadn't made that. So I don't know if those three things resonate or make sense. They do. I love that. So take your time and enjoy it. You don't have to rush. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today. That's been just a lovely conversation. Thanks for sharing your experience and continued success is my parting wish for you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Claire. 
Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Unlocking Leadership, you can subscribe through all the regular podcast channels. And please do leave us a rating and review there. We'd also love you to share any episodes you've found interesting on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or wherever, so that others can join the conversation and share their experiences. This podcast was made in association with Cornell. It was produced and edited by Nick Hilton for Podo. Thank you.